0: Good morning, our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. I invite you now to listen for a word from the Lord. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old or younger, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He was called a Nazarene. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to, to God. When I was in elementary school, my family lived in Jacksonville, Florida. And one of life's many blessings in that season of life is that my grandparents were a mere 35 minutes away. Now, 35 minutes is not a long time. 35 minutes is just enough time to watch a sitcom or catch up on the news. 35 minutes is just enough time to take a dog on the walk or do the dishes. 35 minutes is enough time to start the laundry but not enough time to finish it. 35 minutes is enough time to microwave a meal but it might not be enough time to make something from scratch. 35 minutes is enough time to be productive if you have the energy but it's also a short enough amount of time that you can easily fall into the cyber black hole of email or social media and not feel too guilty. Unfortunately, in my experience, this understanding of time seems to be lost on most children as soon as you put them in a seatbelt. All of a sudden, 35 minutes might as well be five years. My brother and I were no exception to this norm. We would learn in elementary school that we were headed to Mimi and Poppy's and we would furiously start packing supplies. We'd pack toys and blankets. We'd pack boxes of Legos and some coloring books, maybe a pillow in case we needed to take a nap. We would pack a few stuffed animals and enough snacks to hold us over to the apocalypse. We'd arrive at Mimi and Poppy's, and it would look like we had driven there from New Mexico. And even with all of our distractions, with our games and our pillows, our snacks and our music, we would still ask that inevitable question about 15 minutes in. You know the one. Are we there yet? I think that we as human beings have never been great at being in between. It must be in our DNA. We want to arrive. We want to get there. We want to have clarity. We want to stick the landing. Being on the way, in route, in transit, somewhere in the middle, almost but not yet, that has never come quite as easily. And I think the Gospel writer of Matthew knew that. For it is tempting this time of year to see Christmas as the destination. Unto us a child is born. Check. We wore red and green. The parking lot was full. The pews were packed. We sang silent night. We raised our candles. We served communion. The brass played. The choir sang. It sounded like angels. Check, check, check. Christmas has happened. Jesus is here. We have arrived. Right? Maybe. But our text today makes me think differently. For it seems to me that Matthew was trying to remind us that Christmas is not actually the destination. Instead, our text today pushes us out of the comfortable we have arrived space, back into the 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 on-the-way-in-route-in-transit-somewhere-in-the-middle-almost-but-not-yet space. If I understand the text, Matthew is reminding us that Christmas is not the destination. It's actually the beginning. Are we home yet? My brother and I would ask. Almost, but not yet. Here's what I mean. Matthew chapter 1 ends with Jesus being born. The last words of the chapter are, and Joseph named him Jesus. It's simple and to the point. No extra details spared. And I so badly want Matthew to linger there for a moment. I want Matthew to tell me about Mary introducing Jesus to his grandparents. I want Matthew to tell us about first words and first steps. I want Matthew to tell us about the other people who came to visit because word was spreading through that small town rumor mill. I want Matthew to tell us about the casseroles and the sleeping schedule and when Mary and Joseph got back to a sense of normalcy. I want Matthew to linger at Christmas because for a moment everything seems good and right in the world. However, that's not what Matthew does. Matthew pivots and it feels abrupt. For in a few words we go from Jesus being born and the Magi visiting all is calm, all is bright, to Herod's rage, violence, and oppression. You heard it in the text. Mary and Joseph have a newborn, and shortly thereafter, an angel appears to Joseph a second time. This time, however, instead of bringing good news to all people, the angel tells Joseph to run. Herod is threatened by the rumors of their child and seeks to kill him. It is a drastic turn from the hope we find at the manger scene. So Mary and Joseph become the textbook definition of a refugee, a family fleeing their nation, their home, their people, to live in a foreign land because home was no longer safe. And yet again, it would make sense to linger in this moment to tell us what happened and how they managed. But Matthew provides us with no additional details. So we don't know if Mary and Joseph were homesick, longing to return. We don't know if they planned to be in Egypt for all of their days until the angel told them otherwise. We don't know what it was like for Jesus to grow up there. We know almost nothing. All we know is that they fled. And so we have to wonder, why did Matthew include this in the story? Why does Matthew pull us from the glow of Christmas Eve and drop us into this story of violence, fear, and oppressive power? If there are no details about Egypt, why bring it up? I can't know for sure, but I wonder if Matthew does not linger at the manger scene, because Matthew knows that that's not the destination. I wonder if Matthew shifts so dramatically from manger to escape in an effort to remind us that we still have work to do. For love has come, and Christ is born, but there are still mothers crying for their children and families fleeing and rulers that abuse power, and that means we, as people of faith, have a job to do. So Christmas cannot be the destination. It has to be the beginning. Are we there yet? No. But I think we know the way. I had one of those homesick, already-but-not-yet moments the week the tornado hit. You all have heard the stories of that week, either here or on the news. We turned the youth house into a crisis response center overnight. There were upwards of 50 volunteers a day in the youth house making sandwiches, sorting donations, and taking supplies out to the affected areas. We served thousands of meals and restocked a devastated elementary school with supplies. It was crazy, messy, exhausting, and holy all at the same time, and I will never forget it. One of my most memorable interactions from that week happened on Friday. On Friday, we had a food truck show up to provide a free hot meal to anyone and everyone who needed one. And at about 3 p.m. that afternoon, as the truck was packing up to leave, a Hispanic family of eight showed up. Two parents, four beautiful children, ranging from probably two years old to eight or nine, and two elderly grandparents. It was raining and bitterly cold that day. The family was ushered into the youth house where we had a fire lit and meals prepared. And they sat down together at a round table and ate quietly, keeping to themselves. I'm sure somewhat uncomfortable in that unfamiliar space. When I saw them, I walked over to the table and introduced myself. The oldest daughter, who was probably eight, spoke beautiful English and translated for her parents and I. I asked them how the food was and if they were staying warm. Small talk questions. Then after a few minutes, I asked her the question that everyone had been asking that week. Is your house okay? Were you all affected by the storm? The little girl looked at me with big brown eyes and shook her head. And without words, I turned my face to the four adults at the table and saw the truth written in plain sight. They had lost everything. The dad handed me his phone, opened to photos of a house in complete ruins. The daughter pointed at pictures and went on to explain that the parents had saved for years to buy that house, and they had moved in just ten days prior to the storm. It was a total loss i felt like the wind had been knocked out of me for a small child who had undoubtedly gone through an incredible amount of trauma that week she said those words so calmly and matter-of-factly i could tell that she was strong but i hated that she had to be so i stood there mind racing trying to think of a way to help this family And then the youngest brother, who could not have been more than two, started squealing and squirming in his seat, eager for some attention or affection. And in that moment, I remembered that despite all those kids had been through that week, kids are still just kids. They want to know how long it is to grandma's house, and they want to play when they get bored. So I leaned down, and I got eye level with those four little faces, and I said, you guys have had a hard week. I think you could use a surprise. Follow me. I want to show you something. The oldest sister translated for her three younger brothers, and immediately they popped up from the table, giggling with eager anticipation as kids so naturally do. I walked them into one of the back classrooms of the youth house where a group of Presbyterian women were working hard to sort and organize hundreds of cases of food supplies. The kids trailed behind me like four little ducks, eyes wide as saucers as they entered that supply room with its boxes stacked almost to the ceiling. I said to the women in the room, Ladies, these sweet kids lost their home on Sunday night. I think they could use a cookie. Do we have any to spare? And y'all, if love could be measured in cookies, those kids would have had enough for a lifetime. Those Presbyterian women dropped everything and opened up every single case of cookies we had, gushing love over those kids. They filled Ziploc after Ziploc with cookies, letting them pick their favorite, and then they invited the parents in and gave away bags of oranges and boxes of protein bars. And when the toddler began pulling on people's sleeves asking for milk, they rushed into the kitchen and returned with plastic glasses full to the brim. It was a painfully beautiful moment because it was the church being the church as she should be. And for a moment, those kids were just kids. And for a moment, suffering was held at bay. And for a moment, we lived like we belonged to one another. But as I stood on the porch later that afternoon and watched that family leave, I was painfully aware that I would probably never see them again. And I thought it might rip a hole in my heart. For in that moment, all I could think was that God was real, but so was their suffering. And so members of this community got up the next morning and we went back to the youth house and more volunteers showed up and rolled up their sleeves and the Presbyterian women came back and stocked the fridge with milk just in case those kids showed up again because that's what you do when you believe that God is here, but the promised day is not yet. You keep working. You keep loving. You keep walking. Are we there yet? No. But I think we know the way. Theologians refer to this already-but-not-yet belief as eschatology. Eschatology is the fancy theological term that addresses the end time or the promised day. However, in short, it also stands for the belief that Christ is among us, Christ has been born, and yet the world is not as it should be. Therefore, as people of faith, we eagerly await the promised day where swords will be beaten into plowshares, where all children will have a roof over their heads, and where there will be no more tears. Now, Matthew did not use the term eschatology, but I think he felt it. For it seems to me that Matthew did not linger at the manger, because Matthew was eager for us to get to the not-yet part. I wonder if Matthew did not hold us under starlight and delay us with additional visits from the Magi, because Matthew needed us to remember that Christmas is not the destination. It's the beginning. It's a family of faith. We aren't home yet. Christ is born, and for that we rejoice. But like Rachel crying for her children, this world still knows suffering, and as long as that is the case, we have work to do. So may this Christmas season be a holy reminder to us that we are called to roll up our sleeves. And when the children ask, are we there yet? May we honestly be able to say, not yet, but we've seen the way. This is the beginning, and we're not done walking. Pray with me. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief.